doxological counseling, instructing worshipers to the praise and glory of God. Um, that'll be the, the title of, uh, of this series. It'll be six weeks talking about the implications that the glory of God and a thorough understanding of God's greatness ought to have on our counseling. Uh, this has been a, a topic that has been on my heart for a very long time, uh, just something that I have uh, enjoyed dwelling on and uh, considering from the scriptures and researching and reading about and extra biblical resources and uh, trying to take what I learned and started to learn the way I started to learn to read my Bible here in the build classes in 2008, late 2008, 2009. Um, and then everything I learned in my biblical counseling training. And so trying to just marry uh, the things that, that I was hearing in, in two different places. Um, the first time I, I took build... 11 years ago um, here, uh, I was being taught to draw near to the Word of God so that you can meet with the God of the Word, and learning basic, basic principles uh, like reading your Bible is not primarily about correcting others. That was monumental to me, uh, unfortunately but that reading my Bible was primarily so that I could know God and be transformed by what I was reading. And that same, the same time, just like we still do, when Build was starting, they were starting the trust where we take men who have completed Build through systematic theology and teaching them how to uh, craft a sermon uh, using God's word from a specific passage. And Eric Martin had uh, already owned a copy of the attributes of God that they were reading in that class. And so he happened to walk up to someone that I was talking to and say, hey, I already have this book. Uh, give it to somebody who wants it. And the guy took it and said, you have this book? I said, nope. And so he gave it to me. And uh, so I was learning how to read my Bible. I was reading Arthur Pink, and I was in uh, the Master's University Biblical Counseling Program. And so all of those things kind of collided. And as I was doing this intense study in this master's program and learning how to read my Bible for the first time, and then becoming acquainted with God's attributes through Arthur Pink's book, uh, God just used that period of my life uh, to sort of set me on a course to just see him behold his glory in the scriptures, which I'm so thankful for. And that's been uh, the case for the past 11 years. And so this study, Doxological Counseling, um, is the fruit of, of study and, and a passion of mine um, that's been that for a long time. And so I, I really want to encourage our body with these things and, and help us draw near to God, uh, even for the sake of 
of counseling, our own hearts and others. And so I'm going to pray and then explain uh, and kind of introduce this topic. God, thank you so much for your word. You are a great God who is worthy to be uh, praised greatly by us. I pray that we would draw near your word now, that we would get something of a glimpse of your splendor. And God, that as we, uh, as we do that, that that glimpse that we get of your glory would weigh us down in, in a good way, uh, burden us with the significance of your worth and your character and your person, and that we would be eager uh, to have our own hearts impacted by that view of you, and then those in our lives, uh, whether that they be neighbors or family members or a spouse or children or parents or friends, that we would be eager to impact their lives with that same view of you. And we pray that you would be gracious to us now in Christ's name. Amen. So what is doxological counseling? What do I, what do I mean by that term? That was a, a term uh, coined by Smedley. He may not even remember that. We were playing pickup basketball, and I was talking to him about my thesis. And he's like, maybe you should call it something like doxological counseling. And I'm like, that's perfect. I've been trying this for months, and you just accidentally gave me my title. So uh, what we mean by doxological counseling is really simply this counseling or personal instruction that helps people become better worshipers who are motivated by and living for the sake of the glory of God. That's what we mean by doxological counseling. Counseling that helps people become better worshipers who are motivated by and living for the sake of the glory of God. And really the why, why are we we discussing this is simply because we're all counselors. We're all counselors who are accountable to God for our counseling. Um, Counseling, simply put, is a conversation where one party with questions, problems, and trouble seeks assistance from someone they believe has answers, solutions, and help. That's how uh, Heath Lambert uh, defines counseling in his book, Theology of Biblical Counseling. And, and so this happens informally in conversations that you have maybe with your neighbors uh, who walk across the street in, in the middle of the day uh, with no agenda. This can happen uh, between spouses informally, and uh, this happens when a mom instructs her children casually during the day, um, or corrects them at home. Uh, This happens with students at school, one friend talking to another about how to think about an upcoming test that they're uh, maybe anxious about. This happens between members in small groups when we do core questions or when you find out how somebody's week is going and they're having a hard week. This happens for some of us. If you're like Michaela Dudley on the job, right, and you're a chaplain. And so this uh, counseling happens all the time informally. And it also happens uh, formally as well. If you're getting together with a brother or sister in the body to talk about a specific issue of sin that they're dealing with or 
trying to help them help somebody else or think through a specific situation, uh, giving them counsel about a job to take or how to think about taking a new job or not, a promotion or not. Counsel happens all the time. And all of us are accountable before God for what kind of counsel we give. We could give, as believers, uh, counseling that glorifies God and exalts God, or we could give advice that is completely devoid of any thought of God and absent of God, which makes it godless or secular counseling. And so the reason that we're going to spend the next six weeks talking about this is because we want to know how to glorify God and how to help other people glorify God and be better worshipers of God in the advice that we give. So briefly where we're going, uh, we'll talk about today just thoughts about God that prepare us to worship. That's what we're going to go over today, and we'll look at four convictions that need to shape our understanding of counseling in preparation to worship God well. The next classes that, that uh, we'll be in over the next six weeks is uh, worship. We'll talk about worship next week. We'll spend a lot of time in Exodus chapters 32 through 34 and talk about how what we see happening in that passage of Scripture informs how we should be thinking about worship and the fact that this is God's priority, not just God the Father, but it's also the priority of God the Son, and not just God the Father and God the Son, but it's also a priority of God the Spirit. All of them together, each member of the Godhead, is seen in Scripture as prizing the worship of mankind. And then we'll talk about the role that the gospel plays in worship, how the gospel is the foundation of establishing right worship, and how the gospel has implications for our ongoing worship. Uh, class four, we'll talk about the role of faith in worship. And even if I'm a believer, what role does faith play in my ongoing improvement in my worship or sanctification? Uh, what does faith and, and belief have to do with that? And then the last two classes, we'll talk about um, what I've called sanctification sincerity a sincere sanctification, when is change worship? Change in and of itself is not inherently good um, because someone could change for the worse, they could change not for the glory of God, and or they could change for the glory of God. And so we're going to make that distinction. When is change actually to the glory of God? When does it actually count as worship? And then finally, we'll talk about what we call heart shepherding. How do we shepherd our heart um, as a form of worship? How do we think about heart shepherding as worship in our lives? And so that's where we're going. Today, where we're going to start this entire conversation is with four convictions that must, not ought to, but they, or, or they ought to, they must shape our understanding of biblical counseling. If we're going to do counseling the way the Bible tells us to do it, what are four underlying, basic, rudimentary, foundational principles that we have to, or convictions that we have to latch on to? These aren't the only things that there are to be said about biblical counseling. Uh, when we counsel like the Word of God is sufficient, um, there's more to be said besides what we'll talk about 
over the next few weeks. But these four convictions are a necessary part of, of any conversation that's going to involve biblical counseling. As uh, many of you have heard or know, I've read, A.W. Tozer uh, famously said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And likewise, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about our counseling. What we think about God is the most important thing about our counseling. And so that is this first conviction Right thinking about counseling begins with right thinking about God. Right thinking about counseling begins with right thinking about God. If we fail to think rightly about God, then we can't help but fail to think rightly about counseling. There are all types of systems. Uh, Some call themselves biblical. Some call themselves Christian. uh, And some don't. Some call themselves other things, go by other names. They all, this applies to all of them. Whatever a counselor or a system espouses about God inherently informs that counseling system. That applies to uh, every system of counseling. That applies down to the individual counselor. What a counselor thinks about God is where his thinking about counseling begins. And so instead of asking the question about counseling, what do we think is true about people, or what do we know is true about the world, or how can we help people be happy, or what do we think about mental illness, or what do we think about the beginning and end of people's problems, instead of trying to start a foundation, a theology of counseling there at those questions, where we want to begin is, what is true about God? That's where we want to begin to think about counseling. Right thinking about counseling begins with right thinking about God for a few reasons. Let me give you uh, uh, the first of those few reasons. Right thinking about counseling begins with right thinking about God, first of all, because everything begins with God. Everything begins with God. And since everything begins with God, Counseling is no exception. Uh, Go back to to Genesis chapter 1. This is where the entire Bible begins. And so this is where our thinking about counseling ought to begin. What's true about God? First, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was no counseling and there, there was no need for counseling before God made everything. This is the beginning of all things. And so this obviously has to be where counseling begins. Not only do all things, though, begin with God. But if you fast forward to chapter 2, verse 15, we see that the first counselor was God himself. Chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 15. Then Yahweh God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. This is before Eve even arrives. So just God and Adam, he puts Adam in this garden that he had already prepared for him. And then he gives him counsel. Before sin, he gives him counsel. Yahweh God, verse 16, commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely. But, 
except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So even in this world, prior to sin, Adam needed instruction on how to live. That's the point. That's the counsel. And so counseling begins with a right view. Right thinking about counseling begins with a right thinking about God. Because everything begins with God, and even God is the first counselor. So counsel actually began with God. Adam needed instruction on how to live. Uh, Another reason why right thinking about counseling begins with right thinking about God is because fearing God, second, is a prerequisite to interpreting the world accurately. Fearing God is a prerequisite to interpreting the world accurately. You can turn to Proverbs chapter 1. This is, again, a foundational passage. Um, But now to the book of Proverbs. I would argue that no proverb should be interpreted without chapter 1, verse 7 in mind. Proverbs 1, 7 says, The fear of Yahweh, the same God who created and is the first counselor, the fear of him is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. To have what God qualifies as true knowledge true wisdom, right thinking about anything, in order to possess that, you and me have to first have a right relationship with our creator. We fear him. That means we stand before him in reverence and awe and believing what he said about everything. Trusting him, taking him at his word, and responding to his character with fear, that would include fear and trembling. Uh, And so we we have to be rightly oriented toward God before we can have what God calls true knowledge. Before you can enter into knowing anything truly as it ought to be known, you have to first fear God. And so that applies to counseling. If we don't think rightly about God, then we won't think rightly about how to give advice to one another, to other people. Um, and that, I would even say that applies to your own heart. When you speak in, your, in the quietness of your own soul and tell yourself, don't think that, think this, that's dependent on what you think about God first. Uh, Jay Adams, who really helped make the church aware about 50 years ago of our responsibility to, to counsel, instead of uh, what, what Jay Adams saw happening in the 70s was pastors, people with personal problems in the church were coming to uh, pastors and telling them, go see a professional, right? You're, you have problems that the Bible talks about, like fear, like worry, like anxiety, like interpersonal relationship issues. Uh, the Bible talks tons about those things, but go to a professional outside of the church. So Jay Adams wrote tons uh, to help make the church aware of our responsibility to counsel one another, and that God instructs that. He says this in one of his books, all counseling by its very nature, as it tries to explain and direct human beings in their living before God and before other human beings in a fallen world, all counseling by its very nature implies theological commitments by the counselor. 
he simply cannot become involved in the attempt to change beliefs, values, attitudes, relationships, and behavior. That's what we're aiming to do in counseling. He cannot do that without wading neck deep in theological waters. Everyone has a theology who counsels. And so whether or not we fear God is a prerequisite to interpreting the world rightly, accurately, and therefore counseling well. And finally, right thinking about counseling begins with right thinking about God because, thirdly, God has told us how to think specifically about counseling. God has told us how to think about counseling. Um, A passage like Psalm 1-1, you can turn to Psalm 1-1. That has something to say about counseling, and it's interesting that the the entirety of the Psalms begins here with a statement about counseling. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. This tells you how to be a happy counselee. If you want to be someone who is blessed, who uh, lives well, don't take counsel from the wicked, from people who don't fear God. That's a foundational principle or principle to counsel. So God tells us how to think about counseling. He doesn't take counsel from the wicked, walk in that counsel, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But what does he do? Well, his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And there you see that's a, a, a statement that's set opposite to taking counsel from the wicked. You want to be blessed? Don't take counsel from the wicked. But who should you take counsel from? God's word, his law. That's the path of blessing. And, and you not only look to it for counsel, but how often do you do that? Day and night, you make it your meditation. So God's word tells us how to, take, uh, how to think about counseling. So if the starting point for a right view of counseling is God himself and thinking rightly about him, then we need to think rightly about God. And what thought is then foundational to our thinking about God specifically? That's where we're going. I want to think rightly about counseling. So before that, I need to think rightly about God. If I'm going to think rightly about God, then what do I need to think first about God? And I would argue that this is a, this is a first, of first importance, if you will, to think rightly about God. Conviction number two, we need to believe that always God is God. Always God is God. And what do I mean by that? Um, It's hard to capture this idea um, on its own, but think with me for a second. Before what we just read in Genesis 1-1, before the beginning— What was there? Well, there was nothing. There was no thing. It was not a big black emptiness because there was no size, big. There was no color, black, or lack thereof, however you define that. And there was no emptiness because there was no space, right? If you imagine nothing for a second, 
that's probably something like what comes to mind, just blackness, void. Well, no, that implies that there is something, and there was time, and there was matter, just not much of it. That's not nothing. (laughs) Before Genesis 1, there was just God. Spirit, infinite, glorious, great, all on his own. And God was everything he is today, then. If you can say then, because that's a time word and there was no time, right? You're like, we're grasping for like language, which is good. Nothing except God. Now try and imagine that. And if you try, you failed. Because we just have no perspective there, right? And that's intentional because we're created beings. We start to get a, a sense of our finiteness when we try to imagine nothing but God. We can't imagine nothing but God. We can't even imagine God as he truly is. Um, We just have a glimpse of him and what he's revealed in the scriptures. Uh, Arthur Pink, in, in that book I mentioned, The Attributes of God, he says, during eternity past, God was alone, self-constrained, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, in need of nothing. Had a universe, had angels, had human beings been necessary to him in any way, they also had been called into existence from all eternity. Does that make sense? If everything God created, if he needed any of those things, then he would have always needed them, and therefore those things would have had to be eternal as God is himself. Nothing is necessary to God. The creating of them then, when he did, added nothing to God, essentially. God, he, changes not. Therefore, his essential glory can be neither augmented nor diminished. Everything that God has been, as glorious as God will be, he has always been, is the idea. And we get a glimpse. God in his kindness has given us a glimpse of this in explicit passages of Scripture. Um, you get that in Genesis 1 in a sense, right? The, the, the way that, you know, the subject of the sentence, God created And then it tells us when, in the beginning. And then verse 2 tells us that the Spirit was hovering over the waters. Well, where did he come from? He's not the heavens. He's not the earth. Oh, well, he was already there as well. And then if you turn to John 17, Jesus even mentions this in his earthly life as he communicates with the Father. He tells us what God was doing before he created and was involved in creation. John 17. Here you have this uh, incredible conversation, one-sided conversation happening as Jesus prays to the Father. In John 17, his high priestly prayer, as we call it, where he starts his high priestly prayer is similar to where the entire Bible starts, with God, with God's greatness, 
and look at what he says. Well, clearly God's glory is on his mind. Um, let's just start at verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. What's on Jesus' mind? Glorify your son. Glory is on Jesus' mind. Why? Well, that the son may glorify you, the father, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Eternal life and Jesus granting eternal life to those who believe is about the glorification of the son and the glorification of the father. Verse 3. This is eternal life. What do, you, what do you mean, Jesus? He defines eternal life, that they may know, those to whom he gives eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. What was God doing before he was displaying his glory in creation? He was being glorified, worshipped, if you will, by the Son, by the Spirit. The Father was glorifying the Son. They were enjoying the glory that they possessed inherently before anything else existed. That is God. Infinitely, eternally, always glorious And that's what they were doing for all of eternity. And when he created everything, right, if God, you think, what's the, um, we we ask, or we could ask, what's the purpose of man? That type of uh, question has been, you know, talked about for for ages. Um, What's the purpose of God? What's the purpose of God? He doesn't need anything, so the purpose of his purpose can't be tied to anything outside of himself. God is, God is just, his job is to be God. He doesn't have a purpose outside of himself. God's purpose is to be glorious and exist as he is. And so Jesus, having glory on his mind, in his thoughts, as he's going to the cross, that tells you what prayer is about, tells you what eternal life and salvation is about, tells you what the cross is about, as Jesus has these, all of these things for the glory of God on his mind at this crucial hour, um, this is, is what we ought to think about God. These are the terms in which we ought to think about God. Now, that big, grand, lofty view of God can't help but trickle its way down into your advice that you give to people, into counseling, is the point. And so a conviction that we have to hold is that God always has been who he is, um, glorious, infinitely glorious. Uh, this has an obvious implication for counseling, by the way. It's that uh, God doesn't need biblical counselors. He doesn't need counseling. Um, if God has always been infinitely glorious, then counseling doesn't do him any favors is the point. Right? And Jesus even says that in, in Luke seventeen nine. Um, at the end of the day, the servant who has diligently spent his life and spent himself, who is exhausted in the service of his master, Jesus, 
What does he, what does he do at the end of the day? Say, man, I've done a good job. Way to go. No. He says, I've just done what was required of me. I'm an unworthy servant. Right? Counseling is a privilege. Serving God is a privilege. Not that we do God any favors, but it is, it is a privilege for us. And when we think about God in these terms, we understand that God is infinitely great, infinitely grand, um, doesn't need anything from us. And therefore, uh, if he is infinitely great, the glimpse that we get of him, what we know of God, we can know accurately, but we can't ever know fully. Does that make sense? We can't ever know God fully to where we can say, hey, what I know about God is complete. The, com- the complete uh, thought that I, or the thought that I have about God, there's, there's no, no more depth to be, to be measured, to be uh, searched out in that. Turn to Psalm 45.3, another statement about the greatness of God. I love this. Psalm 45.3. It's, uh, it's interesting to think about Jesus' statement in John 17 that eternal life is to know God and his son. And then to think about that passage in light of one like this, Psalm 145.3, great is the Lord, great is Yahweh, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. David here makes the statement that God possesses greatness, God, God's worth, his person, his character is great, and therefore... He should be worshipped in a way that's commensurate with his character, great, greatly, or highly, if you're reading the NASB. God is great, therefore he is worthy of great praise. And what kind of greatness? He circles back around to just caveat, what kind of greatness does God possess? Well, it's an unsearchable greatness. It's a greatness that can't be fully fathomed that we can't fully wrap our minds around. That's the kind of greatness that God's character possesses. And so when we think about eternal life being to know God, what will be our, what's Johnny doing right now? He is searching the unsearchable greatness of God in a way that we're limited by here on earth, right? We have to sleep later at some point. We get tired and and have a hard time holding the same thought about God. You know, we get dizzy thinking about these types of things. Johnny doesn't have that problem anymore. And yet God's greatness that he is searching out is still unsearchable. And he's got a head start on us. Uh, The first saint to die and go to heaven still lacks a body, a physical body, which he'll get one day. Abel. Abel, the first righteous man killed, the first person killed, even. What's he been doing all these years? Well, he's been searching the unsearchable greatness of God, and he's not done either. That's our destiny, right? Stephen Charnock, who uh, wrote a book, The Existence and Attributes of God, I'm going to read a lengthy quote from him. I think he helps summarize well 
this idea. So stick with me. Every man is to have a conception of God. Therefore, he ought to have one of the highest elevation. Since we cannot have a full notion of him, we should endeavor to make it as high and as pure as we can. All the perfections of God are infinitely elevated above the excellencies of the creatures, above whatsoever can be conceived by the clearest and most piercing understanding. Whatsoever God is, he is infinitely so. He is infinite wisdom, infinite goodness, infinite knowledge, infinite power, infinite spirit, infinite distance from the weakest of creatures, infinitely mounted above the excellencies of the creatures, as easy to be known that he is, as impossible to be comprehended what he is. Conceive of him as excellent without any imperfection, a spirit without parts, great without quantity, perfect without quality, everywhere without place, powerful without members, understanding without ignorance, wise without reasoning, light without darkness, infinitely more, excelling the beauty of all creatures than the light in the sun, pure and unviolated, exceeds the splendor of the sun dispersed and divided through a cloudy and misty air. And when you have risen to the highest, conceive him yet infinitely above all you can conceive of spirit and acknowledge the infirmity of your own minds. And whatsoever conception comes into your minds, say, this is not God. God is more than this. If I could conceive him, he were not God, for God is incomprehensibly above whatever I can say, whatever I can think and conceive of him. These are the terms in which we should think about God. And one more passage that I think helpfully illustrates this. Go to Job chapter 26. In Job 26, he's in the middle of his complaint um, against his poor counselors. Uh, they're bringing the, the wrong counsel to him. And it's astonishing, this view of God that we get in the midst of Job's complaint, because Job is a man who's righteous. He knows God well. He doesn't appreciate his counselors. But look at the types of things that he describes about God, uh, starting, we'll start in verse 6. And then look at how he ends these grand statements that he makes about God. Here we go, verse 6. Sheol is naked before God, the grave or the underworld, and Abaddon has no covering. God stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not split open under them. He's amazed at what God is doing in creation, that God can hold water in clouds, and yet the water is heavier than the cloud, but the cloud doesn't burst, right? Those types of phenomena in creation are incredible, and he knows God does it. 
verse 9, he covers the face of the full moon and spreads over it his cloud. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. He gets to the end of these statements and says, Behold, these are an accurate, full description of God. He doesn't say that, does he? Behold, these are but the outskirts. Um, your, your translation might say fringes of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Job realizes that God's greatness is far surpasses what he even is able to recognize truly about God and what he sees accurately. God's greatness far surpasses that. And so that conviction, if we think about God on those terms, then that cannot help but influence the counsel that we give. The heart that we bring into our counseling, into a counseling opportunity is going to be impacted by your practice of thinking about God in these ways. If we do practice thinking about God in, in these terms, uh, then thirdly, we would conclude that our, our third conviction would be this. All things then, including biblical counseling, exist for God. All things exist for God. Because these types of views, because this understanding does not come to us automatically with no work or help or effort on our part. We don't maintain this accurate view of God on our own, on accident. If we don't work to have this view of God, then a pitfall that we could fall into is exchanging uh, a right view of God and working to glorify God in our counseling with working to accomplish some other end. God intends all things for his end. Um, you could have a hurting person in front of you and think, what I want most is to alleviate their suffering. Is it good to alleviate people's suffering? Sure. Yes. Is it good to help people be happy, sure, unless they shouldn't be. Um, but yeah, those are good things. But that's not God's ultimate goal. God didn't make happiness, and he didn't make, he doesn't intend uh, comfort or ease, a lack of suffering as the ultimate end of all things. He created all things for his glory, for himself. And so, the end goal, even in helping someone, helping alleviate someone's suffering, can't be that person's glory or that person's good ultimately. That may be a, a, a part of what we intend to do, but it can't be our ultimate goal. For example, if alleviating someone's suffering requires you to not glorify God, 
should you do it? If alleviating suffering is at odds in some case with the glory of God, should you alleviate the suffering or should you glorify God? You should glorify God. Um, Parents know this well, right? You have to bring suffering into your child's life oftentimes to the glory of God. And so if withholding discipline is at odds in a moment with glorifying God, you choose the glory of God and you discipline, your, you bring suffering into that child's life, right? Um, and so in counseling anyway, we need to treat each counseling opportunity as if our highest end is to glorify God. And we can't ever move that to the periphery or make that secondary. This is our chief goal. And since the glory of God is the goal in all of our counseling, ought to be the goal in all of our counseling, what that says about each individual, the way man has been uniquely uh, gifted with God, the opportunity that men have been given uh, uniquely to glorify God, uh, we call worship is the fourth conviction. The goal of biblical counseling, because it's the glory of God, the glory of biblical counseling is then worship. And we will unpack that uh, much more next week. We'll talk about what worship is and how those two things connect, what the glory of God, big view of God, has to do with each individual counseling opportunity and, and worship. We have two and a half minutes for questions. Any thoughts, questions? David. Yes. I am telling the counselor, you as counselors, Worship God in your counseling. And if you worship God in your counseling, then your goal will be to help the person worship God in whatever counseling they're receiving. Whatever your, counsel, your counseling is intended to worship God, and your goal in counseling is to help the other person worship God in whatever situation. So yes, it's, it's twofold. Does that make sense? Last one. Yes. Yeah, the, those two things shouldn't, shouldn't be at odds. I'm interested, uh, and maybe we can talk later about the specific, um, maybe a specific situation that you have in mind. Um, but it's glorifying God through means, right? Through a specific uh, 
thing that is said through specific counsel, uh, glorifying your or obeying your employer does glorify God. If unless your employer is requiring you to say something that's untrue, um, but those things aren't aren't at odds, uh, and there may just be a, a nuanced way to think about something that you have in mind uh, specifically. If you if if in your mind there is some some tension there, uh, I'm I'm interested to to hear more though. Okay, um, that is that is all the time we have. I'm, I'm going to stick around if, you, uh, if anybody wants to chat more. But thank you for, for coming, and we'll see you next week. You're dismissed.